Galatians 1, 11-24, hear the word of the Lord. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. If you've been around the Christian church for any length of time, you have probably heard this term. Uh, Perhaps you've also been through some sort of a discipleship training program or a program to help you to learn to speak with others about the Christian faith, and you were taught to develop a personal testimony. A personal testimony. Now, that's fitting because Jesus said, right before he ascended into heaven, you will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? A witness testifies to others about what he or she knows. And so we are to be witnesses, if we are Christians, of Christ. We are to testify about what he did. Now, the idea of a personal testimony is we say not only what he did historically, but we declare what he did for me. And the advantage of sharing a personal testimony is that it's relational, it's personal, uh, it's not an attack, it's simply saying what Christ has done for me. And also, at one level, it is irrefutable, because it is my experience. And so you can't refute my experience. Now, you could explain my experience differently than I do, I could say, this is because of my faith in Christ. You might think of it because of a a childhood trauma or something. You could explain it differently, but you can't deny that this is my experience. Now, Paul here in Galatians gives his personal testimony. In fact, in this letter to the Galatians, about one-fifth of the whole letter is taken up with Paul's personal story, which is very unusual. But he pulled it out and he emphasized it in order to make his main point to the Galatians. And the main point that he was making through all this letter to the Galatians is the gospel that was preached to you is the only 
gospel. It's the only one. And we will hear different arguments he used to, to demonstrate that it's the only gospel. But one of those was his personal testimony. If you look back at verse 1, which we saw last week, he altered the typical greeting and he began entering into polemics in the, in the greeting itself and argumentation. He says, verse 1, Paul, an apostle. And then he insists, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. What we see in this last section of chapter 1 that we're looking at from 11 to 24 is His expansion of that statement. His expansion of the statement that the Gospel that He received was not from men, nor through human agency. And what He does is... um, well, by the way, the reason he's doing this is not self-defense. He's not defending himself. He was being attacked, but that was not his interest. It was not self-defense. It was defense of the gospel. But he used his personal story to defend the gospel. He's saying one argument in favor of this being the one and only gospel is the source of it. I got this gospel. I received this gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And that's the main argument here. And that's the rest of this chapter. You should believe this gospel because it came directly from Jesus Christ. That's how I received it. Now, last week we saw what is the gospel. The gospel, as he's presented it so far, is that God has become one of us. He has become a human in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ died for our sins, that is, in payment for our sins, and God raised him permanently from the dead. In the the verses we've seen, we've already seen those elements, that Jesus is God, Jesus died for our sins, and God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, in order to defend this, he enters into his statement about his life. And he begins with something that they already knew. So he started with something that they already accepted, and that is what he used to be. And he begins in verse 13, and he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. They knew all about this. So he started with common grounds, that which they already acknowledged. And what he says here about himself, that he was an exceptionally pious and zealous Jew. In verse 14, he says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age and among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of our fathers. So, he says, I was an exemplary, outstanding, extraordinarily zealous Jew. And because he was so zealous, in verse 13, we'll see what he did with that zeal. It says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And so he he connects these two. Why did I try to persecute the church? Why did I try to destroy it? Because I was an exceptionally zealous Jew, and I thought that was my religious duty before God to stamp out Christianity. It is remarkable. It's remarkable how often Paul brings this up. Because this is the most embarrassing thing in his life. This is the most shameful episode in his entire life. And he brings it up all the time. How about you? I don't know if you can identify one thing in your life or one period in your life that is the most shameful and embarrassing that you don't want anybody to know about. 
Can you imagine going around and talking about that all the time? Why did he do that? Well, we will see that he didn't do it to revel in sordid details uh, of his past life uh, in order to, to get an audience excited. He did it always to defend the gospel. Let's look at some of these examples. Uh, back in Acts chapter 22, in Acts chapter 22, if you want to follow along, it's on page 1032. In Acts 22, he is speaking to a Jewish audience. He's just been arrested. And he talks to this audience, and he says in 22 verse 4, I persecuted this way, he's calling Christianity the way, this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. So he said, everybody knows this. Everybody knows this. Uh, If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it's on page 1063 and verse 9. He brings it up again. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace to me was not in vain. And then if we look over a few books to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, it's on page 1085, Philippians 3, verses 4 and 6, 4 to 6. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. So that was his his exhibit A for his former zeal, that he was a persecutor of the church. And now one more occasion... And this is all the occasions in the Scripture. Uh, five occasions in which he brings this up. But the last one is in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And here we have an explanation of why he did this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. It's on page 1094. He says, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Then he adds this. Here's the application. Here's the takeaway. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He identified himself as the worst of sinners. Now, he wasn't using hyperbole. He wasn't trying to be exceptionally humble. He was speaking objectively. He was saying, I can find no one worse than I. Because I, to my shame, persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. So why, if this was so shameful, if this made him the worst of all sinners, why did he keep bringing up? It's so that he could demonstrate in his own life the statement that he writes here. That this statement is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And here's how the argument goes. It goes from the greater to the lesser. If Jesus Christ could save the worst 
of sinners. What does that mean? He can save any sinner. That's the argument. That's why he keeps bringing it up. He says, if, if God's grace was sufficient to save me, a persecutor, a blasphemer, one who dragged men and women and imprisoned them and tried to, to get them to deny their faith and hand them over and maybe even to death, if God could, could save somebody like me, he says, my friends, he can save you too. And if you go back to that, that most shameful episode or most shameful thing in your life, He can save you too. Because He could save Paul out of the most shameful thing in his life. That's his former life. Now, the rest of the argument, if we go back to Galatians, is the second part of the personal testimony. Usually we talk about the past life, and that's what Paul just did. And now, what happened? What changed him? And we, we find that pivot verse in verse 15, going from past to present. But when He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. So there's the conversion. There's the call. He says, God knew me before I was born. He knew me be- before I even existed. He knew me. And he who knew me from, from ev- forever, he called me in history. And he called me to preach him among the nations. And this is the echo of Jeremiah's call. Did you hear that? Jeremiah said, before I was born, you knew me and you called me to be a prophet to the, the nations. And Paul said the same he did for him. And he goes on in this section to talk about how after his call, after his call, he had very little contact with the other apostles. Why is this important? Because he's saying, I didn't get this gospel from them. I didn't get this gospel even from the apostles. I didn't get this gospel from any human. I got it from Jesus Christ Himself. Now let's go more or less rapidly through the argument here. Because all of this from 17 to 23 is to back up this statement that he had very little contact during the years after his call to the ministry in which he was already preaching the gospel that he had received directly from Jesus. And so, he argues. Verse 16, he says, He did not immediately consult with anyone. He says, when he was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So he didn't go and check this out and say, oh, is this the bright message? He didn't go looking for for confirmation because he had received it from Jesus. Then verse 17, he says, I did not go up to see the apostles in Jerusalem, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. He says, but I went away to Arabia and then returned to Damascus. He was converted, as we saw last week, on the road to Damascus. And he says after his conversion, after his call, he went to Arabia. Now, Arabia, we usually think of where Saudi Arabia is, the the Arabian Peninsula. But probably the Arabia to which he refers is uh, Nabatea. Nabatea, which was an independent kingdom that the, the, the empire of Rome had trouble conquering, eventually did, but it wrapped around the, the eastern and southeastern side of Israel. 
And so it wasn't as far as we might think going deep into what we would think of as Saudi Arabia, but he was, he was probably to the east and to the southeast of Israel. And then from there, he returned again to Damascus, which is in what we would call, well, it was in Syria. And so think about that. If he, if he traveled from Damascus and he traveled down east and southeast of Israel, and then he went back, he had to go by Jerusalem a couple of times, at least at some distance, probably on the other side of the Jordan River. But he, he went by. He could have easily checked in with the apostles. He could have easily stopped in and said, uh, friends, this is what happened to me. This is what I received. Would you check this out? Would you verify this? But he didn't do it. And he emphasizes that he didn't do it. And then he goes on and says, finally he went up to Jerusalem. Finally, but it was after three years Three years of being a Christian and three years of being a preacher of this gospel that he had received. In verse 18, he says, Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. After three years? And then how long did he spend there? 15 days. He said, I didn't spend much time there. And then he says, in addition, when I was there, I saw hardly anybody. He says in verse 19, But I saw none of the other apostles except James the Lord's brother. So he saw two of them. He saw Cephas and he saw James the Lord's brother. And then once again, we've seen Paul's his stridency here in this letter. Once again, he kind of pounds the table in verse 20. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. So he's emphasizing this with an oath. And then, he says he went back to the regions of Syria and Cilicia in verse 21. Now, he was from Cilicia. He was from Tarsus, which was in Cilicia. So basically, he went home. He went back to his home territory. And um, then he says, those who were in Judea didn't know him by face. Verse 22, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. What's that emphasize? that he wasn't spending time around Jerusalem. He wasn't spending time around those original Jewish Christians. Only they heard about him. In verse 23, this is what they heard. He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's what they heard. So what does that mean? What was he doing during those years? He was preaching. And where was he preaching? He was preaching among the nations. And what was he preaching? He was preaching the gospel that he received by Jesus Christ. And that's what everybody was hearing. And their response was in verse 24. And this is how he ends this chapter. He says, And they glorified God because of me. So he's saying, You Galatians, you're challenging me, you're challenging the gospel. Whereas the original churches, when they heard what I was doing, when they heard about my life, when they heard about my conversion, when they heard about my call, when they heard about my preaching, what were they doing? They were praising God. So you all are out of step because the churches of Jesus Christ, the Jewish churches, were praising God because He had changed the worst of sinners. Now I want to go back and look at a detail here because this is going to come up later in Galatians. Whom did he meet when he was in Jerusalem? He met Cephas and James. Okay, who are these two? They're going to show up later, more than once. So Cephas, 
the Aramaic version of the name Peter. Peter, which means rock or stone. And he was one of the original apostles, one of the original twelve. And he became a leader among those apostles, uh, among first three and then the twelve apostles. And he was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, although after his arrest he had to go out from Jerusalem. Now that's clear enough. But who is this James? That's a little bit more difficult and there's some controversy about who this James might be. It can't be James, the brother of John. Do you remember James and John were apostles? They were brothers. Peter and Andrew, a couple brothers. James and John, a couple brothers. And Peter, James, and John were kind of the inner circle. It can't be that James because Herod had already killed him. So it's not that James, the brother of John. There was another apostle called James, James, the son of Alphaeus. So it could be, as some people say, that this was James, the son of of Alpheus. And then some people postulated, speculated, that Alpheus was Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary's brother-in-law, which would make James his first cousin. Now, why do they do that? Because they're trying to figure out what this means, James, the Lord's brother. And they're saying, well, he was a first cousin, and so that's why they call him Jesus' brother. Some also speculated that this James was a son of Joseph from a former marriage, that he was a widower, and that he had a son named James, and that's why they call him the brother of Jesus, because he was a stepbrother of Jesus. Now, these speculations, these speculations were driven by an idea that took root early in the church, and that was that Mary was not only a virgin when Jesus was born, but she remained a virgin all of her life. That is an idea that took root very early on and became really the, the standard belief among Christians. And so these speculations are really pulling things out of the hat. There's no evidence for this. It's simply to try to protect this idea of Mary's uh, perpetual virginity. However, a more likely identification of this James is that he was a half-brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph after uh, Jesus was born. And we have reference to Jesus' extended family, or rather his close family, in Matthew and also in Mark. If you look at Matthew, for example, Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, it's on page 909, it's, uh, here Jesus is preaching in his hometown, and first they're enamored with him, and then they're sort of resentful toward him because he's, he's, he's so famous, and they're not. And it says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So there James is listed as the next, uh, the next born after Jesus. And so that's the, the most likely explanation. And also, it is probably the same James who wrote our letter uh, in the New Testament, which is the letter from James. Now, why is, why is this important? Um, it's important because of who James became. Obviously, he became a believer 
when he was growing up with Jesus, and even when Jesus started his ministry, his brothers were not believers. His brothers and sisters were not. Uh, but he became a believer, obviously. And he's very much associated with the apostles in Jerusalem. And it looks like when Peter had to flee from Jerusalem, that somebody took the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. And we find in the book of Acts that that was James. Now, church tradition holds that James was a very pious Jewish Christian all of his life. So he was very apt to be able to minister in Jerusalem to his fellow Jews. Getting back to the main argument. The main argument is very simple, very clear. We can sum it up by saying this. The gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians and to everyone else was the one and only gospel because Paul got that gospel directly from Jesus Christ. And he did not depend on human source. He did not depend on human agencies. In other words, Paul said, in effect, this is my story to prove to you that what I preach is not my story or any other human story. What I preach to you is Christ's story. It comes from Him. It came through Him. And so he says, this is an argument in favor of the truth of this story. Now, once again, how does a personal testimony work? I tell you my experience, but then you can interpret my experience in another way. In fact, that's what happened to Paul. When he gave his testimony sometimes, there were other explanations. He was giving his testimony once in Acts chapter 26, and he was giving it to King Agrippa, and the governor Felix was there. And he finishes, I'm sorry, Festus. And he finishes, and he, uh, as he was saying these things in his defense, Paul, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So he wasn't disputing his testimony, was he? He wasn't disputing Paul's experience, but he was interpreting it and saying, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. And you're crazy because you're just so smart. You're crazy smart. You are, your, your great learning has just gone too far, and it has made you crazy. Now, Paul's in good company there, because Jesus also was accused of being crazy. And we read that in chapter 10 of John, verse 20. They say to him, many said... He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Now, do you see what's, what's going on here in both of these cases? They can't dispute the experience. They can't dispute what's going on, but they're interpreting it in a certain way. They're saying to Paul, you are crazy. And they're saying to Jesus that you are either crazy or you have a demon. Now, I want you to, to look at how both of them responded. So in Acts chapter 26... After Festus says, Paul, you're out of your mind, your, your great learning is driving you out of your mind, Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And then, after some were accusing Jesus of being insane or having a demon, others came to his defense, and this is how they came to his defense. They said this, These are not the words of one who is oppressed, by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So, in both cases, the appeal was to what they said and what they did. Paul says, look at my words. 
Do these sound like the words of a crazy person? And others came to Jesus' defense and said, but, but listen to what he's saying. Listen to what he's saying. Those are not the words of somebody who is insane, and those are not the deeds of somebody who is insane. So, if you're not sure what to make of Jesus' words, if you're not sure what to make, or rather, if you're not sure what to make of Jesus, and if you're not sure what to make of Paul, then I would just say read their words. And the great thing is, we have them. This is remarkable. We have their words recorded here. Jesus' words recorded in the Gospels. Paul's words recorded in Acts and through his letters. So we have Jesus' words. We have Paul's words. And I would say, if you're not sure what you think of Paul, or specifically, even more importantly, of Jesus, read their words. And you'll see for yourself. Now, let's, let's sum up where we've been so far and what arguments we have. So far, we saw last week, there are two arguments in favor of this gospel being universally true. That God really did become a man, that, that this God-man gave his life for the sins of his people, and that he was raised from the dead. Last week, we saw three arguments. The first argument was that this is good news, and it is uniquely good news. There's nothing like it in the whole world. You can search the world for a message like this, and you will not find it. It is uniquely good news for sinners, for humans. The second argument is this. It delivers those who believe it. It delivers those who believe it. And we saw this last week. That this is what Paul said. That he wrote this. This is, uh, he gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. It delivers those who believe it. And now we have a special case of that declaration. It delivers those who believe it. It changes them. It alters them for the good. It makes them into new men and women. And exhibit A is the worst of sinners. The worst of sinners. And so if believing this message about God become man, this one giving his life and rising from the dead, believing this message can transform Paul, the worst of sinners, it can transform you as well. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for the good news of Jesus Christ. Those of us who believe it recognize that it is true not for us only, but for all, and can deliver not only us, but can deliver all. And we thank You that You have given us Exhibit A in the Apostle Paul who received it not from any human agency, but directly from Jesus. And we thank You for how You transformed His life, and through Him You transformed the Roman Empire, You transformed the Western world, and You transformed the world through the preaching of that man and the letters that he left. We thank You for how You used that one man, the worst of sinners, to get the Gospel to the ends of the earth and for how this world has been made a better place by this transformation. And I pray for all of us that we would believe this gospel and experience the transformation of our lives as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.